Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week, going to guide you gently through another show. This is a real special show. We have a fantastic guest, Jack Leslie, who's chairman of Weber Shandwick, fantastic PR professional for a number of decades. And he's, he's retiring, but Jack, such a young man, um, you're retiring. What's going on? Well, I'm glad I'm glad you're going to be gentle, though. I'm like, <laughs> you're gently going to steer us through this conversation because I need it. <laughs> well, yeah. it, you know, it wasn't an easy decision. I've got lots of mixed emotions because the agency is obviously such a huge part of me. Yeah. But at this stage of your life, and this is advice to you, Steve and, and Frank, <laughs> for, down, for down the line. But, you know, it's important to be intentional and not just sort of let nature take its course. Yeah. So I've had, as you know, I've had a lot of different sort of outside passions around Africa and global health. And I want to devote more time to that. And you can be on boards, which I am. But if you really want to devote serious time, then you have to kind of make it your day job. So I've been telling people I'm going to turn my night job into my day job while I've still got gas in the tank. Sounds good. Looking forward to chatting about that and your time at Weber and all this sort of, you know, transformational stuff that's going on. Um, and then we'll chat to Frank Washkirk, who's here with us. How are you doing, Frank? Well, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure. Getting ready for that marathon on Sunday. Yeah, I think we're as uh, ready as we can be at this point. And, uh, <laughs> just trying not to mess it up. Yeah, wishing you luck with that. We'll be down Thank you. Our, Thank you. our road and try and wave to you on the way past. Um, but we'll, we'll chat COP26, which we'll chat the PR Week health special, but big bunch of content this week, including our health influence of 30. Uh, the 40 Under 40 celebration last week, that was a great event. Great to be back in person. Brilliant group of uh, next generation leaders. Holding company PR agency trends after all the Q3 financials. Uh, in US elections last night, uh, we're recording on Wednesday and uh, interesting stuff there. And uh, then continuing M&A heat and Omnicom uh, trying to encourage workers back into the office. We'll find out what they're doing. But Jack, let's start with you. I mean, I've seen you in lots of settings around the world. I've seen you in Davos, uh, always doing great works there. Always good to catch up with you there. One of my abiding memories of you is actually on the, in the south of France um, at Cannes at the Festival of Creativity. I was in a our cabana, the Haymarket cabana there, and all of a sudden this big cordon of people swooped by and all the security, and I was like, well, wow, who's, who's, who's coming by? And it was you with the, um, was it the pre- Prime Minister of Colombia? Um, President of Colombia. President, President of Colombia yeah. heading to La Palais to do a uh, presentation. That was quite a day, wasn't it? So but just a, a sort of indication of the type of things uh, that you've been getting up to. Tell us about that one in particular. Well, that was Juan Manuel Santos, who's um, been a longtime client, but also a, a good friend. Uh, he went through uh, quite a career. He was a minister of finance and he was defense minister during the period of time when when um, the drug cartels were still raging and they finally began to bring that under control. And when he became president, his legacy really is having to start for the first time a peace process and finally bringing about a peace agreement with the uh, FARC, which had been going on, that civil war had been going on for, for 50 years. So he won the Nobel Peace Prize. I, I'm trying to remember... I think actually that uh, time in Cannes was before he won uh, yeah. the Nobel Prize. It was in the June before. Yeah, that he uh, he was still president at that point. He'd come from a meeting with Macron, who he really um, admires. And yeah, it was just it was a it was a great conversation with someone who's really made such an enormous difference. And and that's as you know, kind of a especially the early part of my career was spent as a political consultant. Yeah, that's right. Well, I had the, the real pleasure of, of working in lots of different parts of the world that were going democratic for the first time. I mean, the you know, the, the 1980s saw most of Latin America go from from authoritarian governments to democracies. And then the 90s, Eastern Europe, of course. Sad thing is that, you know, in the last 10 years or so, it's starting to 
unfortunately go in the other direction. But Juan Manuel Santos is a great example of a of a real Democrat and, and, and a real hero in Colombia. Yeah, I mean, if you think of narcos, which I guess we've most of us have seen, that was what's changed in Colombia is incredible, isn't it, really, in, in a fairly short space of time. So that's just an indication that's type of global. You've always had that very global perspective, haven't you, um, right from the early days. Tell us how you've been, and that's not always something you associate necessarily with American business or the American point of view. Tell us how that how you developed that and what, what made you think in those sort of ways? Well, I was always interested. I mean, I went to the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, um, came out and worked for Senator Kennedy for eight years before moving to New York. And I went to work for a guy named David Sawyer, who was really one of the pioneers of political media consulting. And when, when always refused, by the way, to move to Washington. M many of the or most of the political consultants were were down there. Um, and he, yeah, uh, Sawyer Miller was his firm. Yeah, and Sawyer Miller was the was the name of the firm. Miller was Scott Miller, who had been the creative director at McCann, had done the Coke Is It campaign, and one day said, "I'm tired of having so many people working for me who all they're worried about is potted plants in his office." That's what he told me. He said, "I want to come work full time to do campaigns." So he showed up, and it became Sawyer Miller. In any event, we, you know, we we had a disastrous, you know, the 1980s were not very kind. We were a Democratic consulting firm in the 1980s. For those of you who remember American history, know that that was not a great time for Democrats. The Reagan era. Yeah. I worked for Ted Kennedy and then uh, John Glenn and then Michael Dukakis and Walter Mondale. And I think by the end of the by the end of the decade, they said, you know, Jack, all things considered, maybe it's a good idea that you practice outside the United States. So, <laughs> so I, I packed my bag and and had a chance to go to um, just some fascinating campaigns, the radicals in Argentina, the no campaign against Pinochet in Chile, uh, the revolution against Marcos in the Philippines. I worked with Nelson Mandela right after he got out of jail to try to help the ANC go from being a paramilitary operation to becoming a political party. Colombia, where I did two or three campaigns during that whole period of the narco. So, yeah, I mean, I had a, I, I had a fascinating time and, and I loved it. I loved it. It's, of course, a, it's a, you know, young person's <laughs> career at that stage. It's hard to have kids. I came back and started having kids and did a little bit less of it. What's, uh, is there a memory from those, those incredible people you've just mentioned that really sticks out? And um, I mean, are you right? Have you written a book about all this? Is that one of the plans? That no, no, no. I did, though. I wrote, I, I have written a book that very few people have. It's called Letters to My Children. And what I would do, because I spent so much time on the road, is every day I would write a letter to my two kids. And I never gave it, gave them to them until... They graduated from high school and I had it bound up and it was basically what was going on in my life at the time or my thoughts for them. But uh, no, there's no that's not a, anything that's immediately in the offing. What was uh, Nelson Mandela like? Oh, just uh, extraordinary, extraordinary. The, the and and when you, you know, realize what he went through yeah. and was able to come out of it with such peace and such dignity. Remember, the first time I went down there, I was I was told you're going to get picked up by someone named Terror Lakate. And you got to remember, this was right after, you know, right after the the apartheid had been abolished. And when I heard somebody named Terror was going to pick me up, I was a little, little concerned. But I found out that he had the nickname because he was an extraordinary football player, ah. uh, soccer player. So yeah. uh, and he turned out to be a very gentle, terrific guy. <laughs> but uh, the work with the ANC was was really more research driven to try to help them develop uh, research for, as a political party. Yeah, fantastic. So, so many stories from back then. I'm sure we could fill several podcasts with those. We obviously know you very well from the Weber Shandwick point of view. Um, tell us a bit about the roots of that. That was 1983, I think, 38 years ago. Um, you talked about that in your notes to the Weber colleagues when you announced your retirement. Small office with about a dozen of you in on 55th Street. With, with two of those other folks, Harris Diamond and Andy Polanski, back at uh, not Andy yet. Andy came, 
with Ozell. Uh, yeah. Came in the early early nineties. Um, Harris came around 80, 86. Harris and I first met each other, I guess, in eighty five. He was managing. He used to be sort of a roving manager of political campaigns, campaign manager. Mm-hmm. He was down. He was, and you know Harris well, so you can imagine how fun this story is. He was he was down in Texas managing the reelection campaign of Mark White for governor of Texas. And and here's this guy from Brooklyn, you know, down in Texas managing this campaign. They they called him Diamond Harris down there, <laughs> which I loved. And he would make he had three or four media consultants. He, all of us made spots, you know, advertisements. And he would have us come down with storyboards once a week. And we would literally have to pitch every week. We'd have to sort of pitch for our supper. Right. Um, and that's how I first met Harris and afterwards decided, hey, we ought to hook up and become become partners. So that was the early days of, of Sawyer Miller. And then that evolved into when we were acquired by Bozell, Jacobs, Kenny and Eckert. That's when I met our friend Annie Polanski, who was uh, then with Bozell PR, which was mostly a, 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 a B2B shop at that time. And uh, I don't know how old Andy was. He was a young buck. Uh, and, uh, and then that firm, Bozell Sawyer Miller merged with Weber Shandwick in 2001 and, and became Weber Shandwick. Yeah. I remember calling Harris, the Brooklyn bruiser once in one of my blogs and I, I had him on the phone within 15 minutes and he, let's <laughs> <laughs> uh, say I heard a lot of his Brooklyn accent for the next time. Yeah, he minutes. pays very close attention to that kind of stuff, Steve. <laughs> I meant it yeah. as a compliment, but uh, <laughs> uh, we, we, we managed to make up eventually. But uh, so, so, so obviously Weber since then has you know, gone on to be like the, the second biggest agency in the world, you know, um, it's uh, hundreds and hundreds of millions dollar firm. What are your reflections on the growth, you know, from those roots? Um, incredible story and um, and really tracks the changes in marketing and communications, doesn't it? And, yeah, uh, yeah, and you know, I mean, yeah, that's what's been such uh, such fun for me to kind of see that that change, which, of course, really was was digital. The advent of, you know, when we when we went digital and we went from being from going from a broadcast era to an engagement era, which probably what happened 10, 15 years ago. Um, that's when the whole world changed because we went from, I remember saying way back then, we went from targeting millions to reach thousands to targeting thousands to reach millions. You know, we used to have a very inefficient way of reaching people because it was primarily through advertising or through mass media. And of course, digital gave us the ability to, to be so much more precise. And then even with digital, you know, Steve, we've seen, or I've seen such uh, an evolution. When we first started in digital, it was primarily to manage social media sites. You know, it's hard to imagine, but back then everyone was scared to death of social media yeah. because, they, because they had no control over it. And, and we know, you know, how everyone wants to have in the marketing business, everyone wants to have control of the message. And here you have this platform that you have no control over. So they, you know, they looked around for different kinds of agencies to manage their social media sites. And interestingly, uh, and not unexpectedly, they said, hey, public relations firms, you know, they know how to manage conversations. They're more comfortable. Or they're probably better suited to do this kind of thing than an ad agency would be. Uh, or, or other marketing disciplines. So we managed hundreds of different uh, social media uh, sites for different clients. And then, of course, they realized that they could do it themselves, which, frankly, I thought was always a good idea because it was much more authentic and it was faster. And, and so we had to evolve and we evolved into content because now we'd created the social media that had this insatiable demand for content. And it was quick and quick. I was going to say quick and dirty. It wasn't quick and dirty, but it was quick content. It was not the thing that big ad agencies, you know, who take months to do a storyboard and a shoot uh, were really set up to do. And so we we pivoted again and we hired lots of folks out of creative shops and we hired photo journalists and and we created content. And we rode that way for a while. And then and that was a little bit outside of our comfort zone, uh, more and more, you know, obviously in the, in the comfort zone of an ad agency. And then we went to that third wave, which was data and analytics, which is where we are now. Uh, and, uh, and of course, as you know, we've all made substantial investments there. 
Would you say that's the biggest change over your career, that that change in control where you kind of try it? Well, you could never completely control a narrative, but, you know, you can try to, whereas now you have to really accept there's a narrative out there and you need to try to be a part of it or to uh, get people to almost, um, you know, advocate on your behalf. But it's a very different perception. And, and the ad agencies have definitely caught on with that now as well, haven't they? It's very yeah, well- it's much more difficult to see where the lines are, aren't they? Exactly. I don't, I don't think there are, you know, as can shows every year when they give the awards, I don't think there are lines yeah. anymore between advertising and, and PR in, in, the kinds of, uh, in the kinds of campaigns that we, you know, we all uh, help manage on behalf of our clients. But um, no, it's, it's, that has been the, obviously the single biggest change. I do think there are certain things that uh, remain um, sort of true regardless of the platform. I think, you know, having messages that are relevant uh, and engaging were just as important in the era of broadcasting as they were in the era of engagement. You know, you needed to have something that, that, that struck people uh, and you needed to find ways to to move the needle. Um, and that's been true throughout my career. Uh, didn't really matter what the platform was. And now as we look sort of forward, um, Gail Hyman's in charge at Weber. It's nice to see a female leader, but again, Gail, someone you've worked with for decades and has been part of that core team, um, you know, with yourself, Andy and, and Harris. And so yeah. where do you see the firm going under Gail's? Well, and she's, well, she was the absolutely perfect person for it. And it's great that she's, you know, one of the pioneer women CEOs, but she was perfect for it, having nothing to do with the fact that she's a woman. She, she, her skill set, her creative chops, um, her her ability to to really um, organize uh, across these different platforms, kind of cohesive campaigns. Her understanding of digital, um, you know, I mean, she's absolutely the perfect person for the job. Yeah, and will and and is so important because it's taking it to you know a very different. Uh, a different place. All of the agencies are. Yeah, you've got to keep moving so quickly, haven't you? You've got to yeah. just stand still, or you're going backwards, and that's yeah. probably always been the case. But I think the pace of it now is is unprecedented, and it ain't, it's not going to stop. And we've seen that uh, in the last. Well, days. You're, you're, right. you're right, but there was always a pace. You know, I used to, I used to, as I did consulting with clients, I would oftentimes look at whatever the challenge was through that political lens, because that's how I started in political campaigns. And we used to have an expression in those campaigns that there are no Wednesdays in politics. You know, you have a one day sale on a Tuesday, maybe some states like Florida, you might, you might, not, get the, you might not get the decision on Tuesday, but in most campaigns you do. And so there was, a, there was always an enormous sort of sense of urgency. Um, and there was also uh, a, a, brutal sort of assessment, honest assessment of what worked and what didn't work. Because if it wasn't working, you pulled it and tried to do something else because you didn't have time. Yeah. You know, whereas oftentimes I think in corporate marketing, at least back then, you know, you could always point your finger at somebody else. Oh, it was pricing or it was point of sale or it was, you know, the PR or the advertising. You could always find something to blame. Uh, but in campaigns, you can't do that. You, you've, you've got to you've got to switch it up and make sure you're moving the needle to get that 50 percent plus one. So I think that was a great discipline. And I, and I do think, though, there was always a, uh, a sense of, of urgency. What's different is that we just don't even have it. We have no news. We used to think about news cycles. And as you know, there are no news cycles. So that that is a huge difference in the way you have to think through these challenges. Do you think that's one of the reasons why people with political skills and and experience do so well in PR because they're yeah. kind of used to that, you know, that day by day, day by day, twenty four seven sort of uh, mentality. Yeah, I, I think they are, and they're if they're good, they're they're fearless. You know, they're they're not intimidated walking into any room with someone who's either you know a senior elected official or going to be one and giving them very tough advice, and you know that. That resonates whether it's in a political campaign or in a corporate boardroom. You know, I think the corporate leaders want consultants who tell it like it is. Uh, and, and I think you learn that in, in politics. Um, Jack, we're going to get you involved in a discussion of topical issues, many of which uh, sort of impinge on, on your experience. But just to finish this segment, you know, the world, we, we kind of think to ourselves, the world's never been in such a sort of, you know, place as as it has 
sometimes forgetting, you know, the Vietnam era or yeah, right. we were talking earlier about the influenza uh, pandemic in the 20, you know, and, and the wars, etc. Where do you think we are at? Because, you know, it's if we can get very doom and gloom about things, but actually people, the, the world's population is probably healthier than it's ever been. You know, if you take it um, in, 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 you know, looking to the past. Yeah. Well, yes. Well, I mean, uh, it, well, that's a very good point. I mean, as you know, one of my real passions is global health. And um, of course, what's a shame about this pandemic is some of the remarkable progress that we were making over the last 20, 30 years has been put on hold for a little bit. But I but I think we'll get by that and, and continue that progress. And the number of people that were brought out of poverty uh, since uh, 1990 has been absolutely extraordinary. So we've seen um, standards of living rise around the world. Of course, much of that's because of what happened in China during that period. But it's but it's happening, you know, in many, many markets. And there there's a lot to be very, very positive about. I think what concerns me and, of course, so many others is the is the divisiveness um, and that we're seeing some of these platforms that we're talking about, social media platforms, really being used to perpetuate and accentuate that polarization. And uh, we have to figure out a way out of that. Uh, I think we will, uh, just as we figured our ways out of, out of other times. As you mentioned, I grew up, you know, my formative years were, were in the immediate aftermath of the Vietnam War and the assassinations of Robert Kennedy and JFK and Martin Luther King and the burning of most of the major cities in, in, in the United States following uh, Martin Luther King's assassination. I mean, we, you know, I, I went through pretty tough times and we, we got we came out of that. And I think we'll come out of this. But it's not something that we should. It's only going to be if we if we uh, are very intentional about it. We're not going to just automatically come out of this. Yeah, we've got to get it. And we've got to find a way to uh, talk to each other again. You know, well, the civility, you know, that's we've been. It's one of the reasons why I wanted Weber Shanwick, and we, uh, you're familiar with it because you reported on it, our, our civility studies that we do every year and we've done over the last 10 years or so. And what's interesting about from the, and you know, obviously, all the numbers and how un, uncivil we generally are. But the most interesting finding in all of that, which I think is really relevant for those who are listening to this, is that the one place where people do believe they can have some safe harbor against all this incivility is their workplace. Yeah. You know, and it puts a burden on employers to really make sure that we're able to provide a safe uh, uh, place for our employees and a place where you have you can you can argue uh, points, but you don't have to be uncivil and you can argue with them with respect. And so I'm you know, I'm hoping that that we can build out from that. Yeah, no, it's a good point. All right, good to chat, Jack. And uh, let's, Frank, let's bring you in on uh, COP26. That's uh, kicked off in Glasgow in Scotland um, on Sunday, I think. And uh, President Biden was over there and a lot of people from all around the world. Tell us tell us about some of the narratives around it and, you know, some, some of the implications of this. Climate change is clearly, the climate emergency is a massive issue for everyone in wherever you are in the world. Yeah, it is. I think it has to be said. There's there's been some progress with um, countries uh, largely agreeing to cut back on deforestation, um, and the Biden administration uh, proposing rollbacks in the amount of methane produced. Um, yeah, I, it, at the moment, are we going to get some massive blockbuster? agreement you know like the paris accords or, or or something to to that extent um it, it does seem like there's a lot of pessimism uh in the air but you know we've enjoyed uh, our coverage from some of our colleagues in the uk um about uh the um the large percentage of comms pros from over there who are at the conference and what they're up to and how many firms over there are launching um green and environmental sections of their business uh, in conjunction uh, with this conference. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I don't know, it'd be good to get Jack's view on this. So you, you sometimes think that climate is taken more seriously or the climate emergency is taken more seriously in Europe. And, you know, for example, at our PR Week UK Awards a few weeks ago, there was there was a protest outside by our climate 
group, you know, sort of uh, um, arguing that brands shouldn't be working with uh, fossil fuel clients, etc., and that they were almost fueling climate ch- the climate emergency. Jack, what's your take on it? You've been to many global gatherings like this. There's a lot of skepticism about them, especially when people are flying in on their, you know, fancy jets and not exactly, you know, uh, helping us get to net zero. So what's what's your take on uh, the COP26 event and those those sort of gatherings in general? Well, I think you're right, actually. I do think that uh, Europeans, if you can generalize, um, tend to take the issue more seriously. I mean, we know just from research that it doesn't really matter where you live in the world, you're, you're well familiar with it and, and have a high level of concern. But the, you know, the, I think what, what we're seeing is a little bit of pessimism sort of creep into the, the big question as to whether we really can hold it to whether it's one and a half degrees or two degrees and, and avoid um, these consequences. I, I, you know, I saw the other night the clip of the footage. You may remember when they brought the green gavel down at the close of the Paris climate meeting and there was just thunderous applause and, you know, uh, all of the people in the room were on their feet. Um, I don't think we've got the same level of enthusiasm in, in Glasgow. So I, I worry that um, that we're, you know, losing losing the will to to fight that said the you know frank your point on companies um taking this up is really something that i've i've seen and been hugely impressed that they're extremely serious about it and they're pushing themselves for example on pledges for net zero carbon emission they're pushing themselves far faster than um than i thought they would go many of them you know choosing to be uh net zero by 2030 is, and some some already are. Um, so private sector this time around um, and a lot of the NGO leaders, you got to remember, you know, you think of that Glasgow meeting as just all these heads of state, but there were thousands and thousands of corporate and NGO leaders there as well who were making commitments. Yeah, there's a whole ecosystem there, isn't there, from yeah. different sectors, yeah. yeah. And I was going to add, this This came up at our conference recently, Um a virtual conference PR decoded and Jenny Robertson from FedEx was talking about how on one hand, the company has so much scale. Um, you know, they own, they own hundreds of airplanes for instance, and, and thousands of vehicles. But on the other hand, that gives them an opportunity to, um, through their investment in this to, 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 you know, reduce so quickly and draw attention to reducing so quickly. It's almost an advantage in some ways. The other thing, by the way, is the whole fin- area of finance. I mean, the financial commitments that were made really were substantial and the pledge not to finance uh, coal burning plants um, was also, I think, significant. So, as we all know, the world goes where the money goes. uh, And there was uh, pretty substantial financial commitments made in Glasgow. Yeah, what did you just just last thing on this? President Biden was there, and as of you know, so talking of social media, there was the clip of him sort of appearing to fall asleep. Um, what 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 do you think that sends out? To well, Biden? you know, it's a, you had to feel sorry because it doesn't matter whether you're seventy eight or you're fifty eight. You know, if you're if you've got jet lag and you're sitting there listening. To, to, you've been to these conferences uh, and I'll bet you've nodded off from time to time. But of course, you can't do that. Nobody cares. Well, Boris Johnson, I see, got the same thing uh, sitting next to David Attenborough without his mask. So, yeah, you got to realize that the cameras are on at all times. But uh, yeah, I, think, I think, frankly, he held up pretty well. And I saw him, uh, he was in Connecticut where I live a couple of weeks ago and I went up and saw him. And I, I have to say, you know, he's, he is as vibrant as any guy I've seen his age and he's entirely with it, uh, you know, mentally. So well, that's good to know. That's good to know. Yeah. We could do a whole show on Boris and his uh, way of presenting himself, but let's leave that for another day. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, Frank, um, big week for PR week this week in terms of health content. We launched uh, a bunch of features, our health influencer 30 list and uh, uh, a lot of content that will eventually make it into our health issue in the November, December print issue, but uh, um, such an important part of the industry these days. Yeah, for sure. Glad we could do this because, um, 
I think as many of our listeners know that healthcare is just such a big part of the agency business and it became such a bigger part uh, over the past year and a half. And it's so important. So glad we could reflect these individuals in a standalone list. Uh, sneak preview of it. There are folks from a range of agencies, from Mbooth Healthcare to Porter Novelli to Reuter Finn to Finn Partners. Uh, and on the client side, Kay Cronin from Moderna, Crystal Downing from Merck. I mean, it's it's a really good Kirsten Gorsuch from United Healthcare, um, which is one of the few biggest, if not the biggest, healthcare companies or healthcare related companies in the whole world. And uh, again, it's a terrific list. Um, you should check it out. And we really managed to bring in a diverse range of companies uh, right. that are part I, of this ecosystem. I got to I got to interrupt though to do a shout out for Laura Schoen, our own Laura Schoen. <laughs> you didn't Fair mention Deborah Shanwick and Laura Schoen. Who I he's still he's still shilling to the end. Uh, no, no. I mean, I, she is she is no, uh, of nature, as you guys know. We were reminiscing the other day after my announcement about when I had my interview with her about 20 years ago. And uh, she was she came from Burson, you know, um, and I was very worried. We had, frankly, a pretty dysfunctional healthcare practice way back then. <laughs> and uh, we're trying to get someone of her caliber. And I was worried we wouldn't get her from Burson. But she she came and she's, and, you know, if she were running an agency just with the healthcare revenue that we have, it would be probably a top 10 would be a top 10, maybe a top five agency in the world. I mean, she just is running a huge amount of business for us. That's a good point, Jack, because one of the features is about the large agencies and their healthcare offers. And uh, yeah, but when the the likes of yourselves and Edelman, 25 to 30% of your business at least is healthcare, that makes you two way above the $200 million mark. So you're right. And that's why, you know, we've, we've doubled down on it and they're doing a daily newsletter and all that stuff because it's every story and, and it's, it's way beyond that, isn't it? Because pretty much every communication story now has some sort of health lens through which it's, uh, you know, it's being told. Yeah, I think if you look at the the data, I think 30% of the overall marketing spend uh, is healthcare. So it's no secret that for large agencies, that's about the same percentage of their total revenues. Yeah. So check that out. We've got uh, uh, profiles of Crystal Downing at Merck and Kate Cronin at Moderna and Dan Amos, the CEO of Flatwall. Uh, also be live soon. Um, Frank, 40 under 40, it was our big celebration last week, our second in-person event, uh, uh, you know, for two years. It was great fun, wasn't it? A really terrific group and a very uh, great evening. Yes, I completely agree. I think if you were there, um, as I think you said before, there was a palpable buzz in the room. I think everybody had a good time and you could absolutely tell um that you know folks want to be back in person and they want to celebrate each other's achievements um and and really you know network uh and have dinner and just um you know just have a good time uh i was at a terrific table with uh emily graham who runs um dei for omnicom group terrific to meet her andy cox from the recording academy uh who came from la um and and really just you know an extraordinarily impressive uh, a group of people across the board, uh, most of whom on the list could could make it to the event. And uh, again, great time. Um, and it was it, it's the, I think it's my favorite event of the year yeah, um, because it it is um, there's a real vibrancy to it and there's a real celebratory atmosphere to it. But it, it's also interesting to see you know all all of the different backgrounds, both professionally and otherwise and skill set wise, um, that these folks come from, because it is it is such a wide range of interesting skill sets and things they bring to the job. And um, you you really learn a lot talking to them. Yeah. And, uh, I, want, I want another shout out. Can I, get I, know, I knew you were going to say this. I, I want to something before you. Our own Pi Wingfield, <laughs> <laughs> who's the lead of the DEI. At Weber Sherwick. And just a, a, a mention, you know, she's with United Minds and you've done some pieces on United Minds. But that when you talk about growth, which I guess you're going to get to in just a second, the yeah. numbers from the third quarter, United Minds for us has just been has had un, just phenomenal growth. And uh, it shows that having a management consulting practice within our firms is a very smart idea um, We're we're really getting um we're getting great growth and great value out of all those at United Minds. Can I just say, say you've still got it, Jack? Uh, you, um, you know, 
Uh, <laughs> uh, you, you think I'm winding down. You asked if there would be a there. I'm not going to wind gearing, down. I'm not winding gearing, down, Steve. He's gearing up. Um, that's a good segue, anyway, into the holding company results. Frank, uh, it kind of reflected what's the last 18 months when we've been you know, seeing at PR Week. Comms, PR, strategy, employee engagement, crisis. It's taken on a much bigger role and senior leaders in businesses now, CEOs, the C-suites, they get it. They, there's no more we want a seat at the table. They are, you're, you're at the table now and, and uh, they want the advice and the counsel. And, and those numbers seem to sort of um, demonstrate that. Yeah, for sure. You, you hear about it anecdotally for a year and now you really do start to, um, to see it in the bottom line. So um, just a real quick update on some of the newest numbers. Uh, that came out this week, which is uh, a really interesting one of Stagwell, which is their first uh, quarter that they are releasing numbers after the combination of the former MDC with Stagwell Group into the combined Stagwell Group. They've grown the organic revenue there almost 33% to uh, $11 million. So that's one interesting number. But focusing on the communications network for a second, that makes up 13% of their business overall. Uh, the firms include Hunter, Allison and Partners, and a few others. They're up 3.4% organically to $7.4 million um, in the last quarter. Now, that's as, as advocacy comms declined on, on what they're calling an off-cycle year. Now, you can imagine, you know, it's Mark Penn's business. Um, he's expecting the political PR business to really shoot up next year when you have all of the midterm congressional races happening. Um, so that, that's one thing to watch is this holding company sort of forms itself, how it how it performs on political years versus off political years. Um, but that's that's one interesting case. And uh, from our colleagues over a campaign, we have a really interesting interview uh, with uh, Mark Reed, the CEO of WPP, which, uh, by the way, he points out that in terms of value, uh, <laughs> WPP has a. Uh, they resumed the top spot uh, above yeah. above uh, Publicis Group. I thought he might just throw that into the interview yeah. for some reason. Um, yeah, Publicis had a one-day uh, standing at the top, didn't they, with their share price? But when WPP's results came out, they they quickly went went back up above it. Yeah, they're up fifteen point seven percent overall uh, in like for like revenues in Q three. Um, and um, he says that all of their business lines are above the 2019 um, levels. And there are, and I think this is especially for our dashboard, comms tech focused readers. Uh, he talks extensively about the holding companies uh, focus on data and how they use data, both in terms of forming campaigns, but also a bit about monitoring analytics uh, and things like that. So it's an interesting read getting to, uh, pick his brain, so to speak, for a little while. Another interesting part about it is he talks about um, it, it just sort of the haters of the traditional holding company model. He says the performance, not just by WPP, but also by Interpublic and Publicis, is really proving uh, the people who have dismissed the traditional agency model wrong. Um, that will remain to be seen. I mean, I mean it's going to take more than one quarter to um, Some totally dismiss that he, idea. He would say that. But um, but yeah, well, um, actually, I'm writing a piece about Mark Reed's comments in the analyst call because he's noted that PR in previous recessions or uh, crises, PR is often the first part of the holding company's business to be cut. But this time and during COVID, it wasn't. In fact, it's grown considerably. And Jack, I'm going to bring you in here, and um, I'm sure you're going to pick up into public's numbers as well. But, but that's um, you know that's that's what's very gratifying, I suppose, for for those who work in the profession and for the, those who cover it, like we do. Yeah, no, I was surprised to tell you the truth when when um, we all got shut down in March. Um, you know, everyone had a dip, obviously, but they we really all came roaring back. And and he's right the. PR segment, the the need for strategic counsel, crisis communications, um, in addition to all the things you would expect, like healthcare, um, was um, you know was uh, I've never frankly seen that kind of demand. Demand. I think that's going to. I'm not sure we can see you know continue to see that forever. And I I do think, by the way, that. 
you know, we've been benefited a little bit by the fact that clients uh, have given us a bit of a break. I mean, we've all been in this together. We've all been, you know, living through Zoom calls. Uh, when we all get kind of back in, I, I think you're going to see clients demanding even more of agencies. Uh, and, you, and you might start to see more pitches and that kind of thing as business starts to move. So, you know, I think this was a this was just obviously a very unusual time, but it was it was great to see that our profession anyway was um, so valued and front and center through much of it. Yeah, you make an interesting point there because, uh, yeah, you ask for a seat at the table, but then you have to deliver, don't you? And you're held to yeah. a high standard. So what would your one piece of advice be like to any PR pro? Well, I mean, don't, be, don't be complacent. I mean, right. uh, this yeah. was and, – and we can't kind of accept that what we did last week is what the client wants next week. It's going to be a very different environment. And uh, we just really got to be on our toes more than – I think more than ever before. No, agree. Yeah. Uh, Frank, one of the big issues with agencies, and we've been covering this a lot, and big top of mind for all of them is getting people back into the office or or at least the future of work. And Omnicom's running a series of buses in around New York and surrounding areas to encourage people to come back to the office. Yes, getting into the transportation business in a way. Uh, so the holding companies hired a private bus service for employees uh, in the five boroughs of New York City to try to encourage to get them back into the office, uh, there's 12 bus routes uh, dropping folks out at uh, you know well-trafficked areas within the five boroughs to give them uh, an easier and I think what most people believe uh, is a safer commute to the office. Um, you know, central locations in the Bronx, Staten Island, Brooklyn, Queens, and New Jersey. Can't forget about New Jersey. And um, interesting note in here. Um, Omnicom had noticed that its London offices have been at about 80% capacity uh, as people started to feel more comfortable uh, returning to work there. Um, where, but obviously that has not been the case. And I think we can all say this from our own personal experience in New York, you know, across industries. Uh, we're not seeing 80% capacity in our own office or hearing about it anywhere else uh, with the folks that we talk to. So, um, you know, it looks like they're learning from a cultural difference here i can confirm it as i'm in the office and looking out over the acres of empty seats that uh, you're absolutely correct and that having voluntary policies basically means people don't come back in so yeah and, and you're also right that in the uk and other, some other countries it's totally different most people want to be back and they are back and they're so i mean i i think my question here is is un, unless the the tubes in london are just so much better ventilated than the subway in new york is <laughs> and i, I somehow no. <laughs> um, but I, I, I mean, in terms of safety, I mean, would do, do you real really feel that much safer in a full coach bus than you would on a subway? I I don't know. So um, I don't know. In my opinion, this is going to shake itself out next year, isn't it? When it is when... definitely yeah. Uh, the the London tube is so small compared to New York. That's what I've noticed when I go in there. You to virtually wrap yourself in knots to sort of get in and in. And, and, uh, but anyway, um, yeah, but interesting. And then finally, on the, on the agency side, lots still lots of M&A heat, you know, in the agency and vendor sectors, Frank. Yeah, there is. Um, you know, we we have talked about the FGH, Finsbury, Glover, uh, Herring, Sard, Verbinner merger um, that creates even you know more of a powerhouse in the corporate uh, specialty area. Really interesting uh, deal this week. Uh, fin Partners scooping up the Hawaii-based anthology uh, marketing group, um, which has about eighty folks uh, out in. Uh, out in Hawaii. I'm not going to lie. It sounds like a nice gig. Uh, and clients, <laughs> including the Hawaii Visitors and Convention Bureau, Hawaiian Airlines, uh, Hyatt Regency, Waikiki Beach Resort, and Spa. So uh, I'm sure there will be getting lots of requests for, uh, you know, working out there for a week or two. Well, we have a guest upcoming in December from IQ360, which is a Hawaiian-based agency. So I'm looking forward to chatting um, about that more. Um, Are you going to do that in person, Steve? Well, I, I thought I'd wear a grass skirt, Jack. What do you think? Yeah, I don't I mean, know. You it, might be, it might be a little lost on audio, but hey, you know, we, <laughs> we can use their imagination. Um, <laughs> let's uh, finish on the elections, which took place Tuesday. Um, Frank, um, maybe a little bit 
less high profile, obviously, than last year's election, but still incredibly significant, actually, and some very sort of noteworthy results. Yeah, and it's sort of like an off-off-year um, election. I mean, uh, some big ones, obviously. Uh, Michelle Wu is going to be the first uh, woman mayor of Boston and also um, the first person of color to be elected uh, mayor of Boston. Um, new York City is going to have a new mayor, of course, in, in Eric Adams. It's after what was a very uh, colorful election day in which Curtis Lewa tried to bring his cat to vote with him and hilarity ensued and his voting machine jammed and you can imagine the antics and um you know red beret on the whole time um but uh, you, yeah. you know uh, it takes john us back to the 80s again doesn't it yeah bloody an angel <laughs> yeah uh, jack you know i'm interested in your opinion on this i mean it's um you know it's not a been a great week for the democrats i mean i think they they lost what was what most people thought was a seat or was a, a governor's mansion they would win uh, it would hold on to in a way in Virginia. And uh, it seemed to be barely the holding on as the in New Jersey as the votes come in. Um, well, it was a it was a horrible night. I mean, as you yeah. as you've probably uh, come to, to learn, I'm a Democrat, a proud Democrat. So it was a, it was, you know, we're all pulling our hair out. Uh, hopefully it was um, Virginia was a wake up call. Um, what happened, I think, in both Virginia and New Jersey, and it doesn't happen all the time in statewide races was was that the campaign really revolved around national issues rather than statewide issues. Mm-hmm. And the public, we know from, as you've seen from the president's favorability rating, the public is frustrated. You know, I think last summer we thought we were had the pandemic behind us and then all of a sudden Delta hit and we've had supply chain issues and inflation. And so people are, uh, are kind of fed up with the direction things are going and, and uh, they took it out on, on Democrats. Plus I'll tell you, it's a great example of what happens when you lose control of the message since we're in this business, you know, Terry McAuliffe, the democratic candidate in Virginia, I'm sure very much regrets having said something about how parents shouldn't dictate school curricula and, and Phil Murphy very much regrets. I'm sure having said, if you care about, Taxes, New Jersey is not the place for you. Um, and both of which, as you probably saw, were put into ads and they were pummeled with them uh, for the last two or three weeks of the campaign. So, you know, I think Democrats have, have realized that uh, this is a this could be a harbinger of what's going to happen in the midterms and they better get control of the of the message. And they've, what would you- they've got to show they can govern. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. What would you What would you tell them What would you tell them to do if you had a If you had a line right into the the West Wing? Well, I think I mean one they uh, which is an easy thing to say, but they've got to they've got to get a deal so that so that people think they can you know get the threshold issue of can they govern. But I think the 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 bigger thing is to try to make sure that they move the message back to. Things that I mean, what what happened in New Jersey and in Virginia, but particularly in Virginia, is that these swing districts, these swing areas, particularly in the suburbs, moved against the Democrats. And I think that we've got uh, and I've got good progressive credentials having worked for Ted Kennedy. But the woke messaging that we have in the Democratic Party has got to stop. It's scaring off these swing these swing voters. Uh, We've got to get back down to sort of bread and butter issues of jobs and so forth, which are all part of of uh, the president's plan and that he needs to talk about more. Otherwise, the Republicans are going to make it about these wedge issues, you know, on immigration and teaching critical race theory in schools and all the things that got uh, folks so concerned in Virginia. Um, so we've got to control the message better um, and we got to show we can govern. You, last question on this. I, I, I just want to get your thoughts on this. The, do you think that the Democrats and the Biden administration have not made enough of a big deal out of the things they have accomplished? Because I, if you look at the news cycle over the past couple of weeks, you have this drug pricing plan that they came to an agreement on. You have this tariff agreement that the U.S. and the EU have agreed on. Now, I don't I don't want to compare the two, but you, you can imagine Donald Trump talking about these two things as though they were the, the biggest deals that, that the country has ever made. And and I, I don't feel like he, he, the country is really hearing that much from Democrats about these things. 
No, I mean, no. I mean, the, the, the problem is we got ourselves, we Democrats got ourselves into a position once we agreed to try to put both of those bills through in tandem um, to, uh, to a number that began, as you know, on the Build Back Better bill to three, three and a half trillion dollars. So that the whole conversation over the last two or three weeks has been what has been cut. Um, you know, and I, and I, it's kind of, I have to smile. I hear, you know, well, we, we, we won't have universal, you know, community college, free community college. Well, we never had free community college. I mean, it's like we lost it somehow. It's, these are all things that we didn't have. Rather than focusing, as you're pointing out, I think, on the things that, uh, that look like they're going to get through. Now, I think it'll start, you know, Frank, I think it's going to, it will start to change. If they can get those bills through, um, I think you're going to start to see some of that. And I'd like to think that this is kind of a low period when you look at the kind of arc of a two-year election cycle. And we still have another year until the midterms. The numbers are stacked against Democrats anyway. Uh, but there is there is time uh, for the Biden administration to get. We should drive that in an administration, Jack. I mean, is that something that everyone has to be uh, making a concerted effort on, whether from from local to national and to the White House press office? So we, how does how's yeah. it gone so badly wrong? You, you well, mentioned it's it's gotta, earlier. This yeah, sounds a bit complacent. Yeah, it's got to get driven out of the White House and out of the part Democratic Party. I think, you know, we've got a lot of chefs in the kitchen. And um, uh, that makes it makes it difficult. And we've got this unusual circumstance of a divided Senate so that you've got two senators who have far more influence than two senators have ever had, at least in recent history. Yeah. So some of it is the card. Some of it was the hand that we were dealt as Democrats. But um, I do think uh, I, this is one Democrat who's sort of frustrated that there's not more central control of the messaging. Sounds like there's an opportunity there for a recently retired expert PR person with classical <laughs> credentials, Jack. <laughs> I'm still gainfully employed through March, though. <laughs> All right, man. Listen, it's great to chat to you, and uh, we wish you well in the last few months at Weber, and then uh, in, well, in what you. You, I'm sure you'll be incredibly busy after that as well, and we uh, look forward to staying in touch on that. It's been great to chat to you. Thanks for joining us on the uh, PR Week. Great. Thanks for having me, Steve. Thanks, Frank. Thank you, Frank. Always a pleasure. Good luck in the marathon on Sunday. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Fingers crossed. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, remember, water, 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 Frank. Keep hydrating. Yes, I will. I will follow your advice on that. I absolutely will. All right. Good luck. Um, don't forget our um, Hall of Fame. That's our last live in-person event of the year. It's on Monday, 6th of December. Maybe... Uh, uh, do a weekend in New York if you're outside and come to that. It will be a great get-together, a return to uh, being together, and it would be a great celebration of PR. But, uh, but yeah, a bit longer show than normal, but I think it was worth it. Terrific to chat to Jack and get the perspectives on his great career and all, and all those issues. So thanks so much, and we'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit PRWeek.com.